The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. We have a great talk for you, um, and uh, Kara, we've, we've been talking to Kara about, of course, Kara has written about Long Now, that's part of her book, um, and so we've been uh, plotting and scheming on this for, for quite a while. So uh, for, for tonight's talk, um, Kara's, uh, Kara's book, which I don't have a copy of with, but we have uh, her book for sale, we have the technology. Uh, in, in the back, and she'll be signing after the talk. There, there it is. Um, is, uh, as you're going to hear, looking at um, the way that humans are looking into the future, extending and expanding the ways that we are human uh, from, from what's at the core. Uh, and I think what's, uh, what's really remarkable about this book is uh, it really documents the science, but also the individuals, the personalities that are driving the quests uh, to follow um, human curiosity and expand uh, what's at the core of the way we experience the world. So let's give a big round of applause for Kara as she leads us into that world now. Okay, am I on? I'm on. Uh, hello, friends of the long now. I'm so excited to be here. I love this place. Um, so, let me make sure that this is working. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's me. So, uh, I fully accept that nobody has any idea who I am. So, these are usually the questions that people want to know, which is, who are you? And how the heck did you report this monster? So, um, I am a science journalist. I teach at UC Berkeley in the Graduate School of Journalism, and I essentially took a year off to go out and uh, I sofa surfed the world to report this book. I'm not a cognitive scientist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I thought those people were really amazing. Um, and so what I wanted to do was not only bring their labs to you, but bring the science of people who are doing things out in the real world, outside of the laboratory. So what I did was I posted on Facebook and I said, hey guys, I wanna go to this military base in Colorado. Anybody got a couch in Colorado? Uh, hey guys, I want to go to Paris because some people are doing something really cool in a hospital in Paris. And it worked. So I went to eight U.S. states and four countries sofa surfing on people. And I thought, I can, <laughs> I'm sofa surfing on people's couches. And I thought, I can show you in two minutes where I went and what I did. So uh, I went here and I went here. Anybody know what that is? That is where they keep the atomic clock. It's where time comes from. I went here. I went here, this is Monell Chemical Census Center. This is kind of like the Wonka factory for smell and taste research. I went to a lot of places that look like this. I went here, this is me driving a virtual Humvee. I'm in virtual reality, so that's virtual Iraq. I went here, which maybe some of you have seen in San Francisco. I went uh, here, this is uh, when I was researching bionic eyes. I just happened to draw, drive by this sign that said percept, and I thought, that's a sign. And here, and here, that's the toasters, but it's uh, in London, so if you can see, it says tea, because tea and toast. And here and here, and I smelled this thing, and I smelled those things, and I drank that thing, and I wore that thing, and I unfortunately wore that thing, and I wore those things. <laughs> and I met this robot part, which is meant to help this robot. Anybody know what that is? It's a surgeon, yeah. So that is for use for robotic surgery. I met this very old computer. Anybody know what this little computer is? 
Yeah, very good. Uh, in order to understand that very new computer, which I th is standing right behind you. Uh, I got these. These are augmented reality uh, tattoos. They animate in a mirror. I got a lot of shots. I turned a lot of stuff that looks like this into stuff that looks like this. And I turned these into those. And I turned these into that. And I drank a lot of this, which is black blood of the earth, the most caffeinated coffee yeah. on earth. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I did to my computer. I don't know if you can see it, but those keys aren't just worn off. They're actually cratered. <laughs> and I did that to my wrists, and I did that to my couch. And at one point, my students took pity on me and sent me this care package. Those are thinking socks. <laughs> yeah, they're really good students. And finally, this happened, and then this happened, which is the last phase of the edit. And then this happened, which is the day debut of the giant head, my cover art. And finally, here we are now. So that's it. <laughs> All right, so what's inside the giant head? So here I want to give you just a quick overview of what I'm not going to talk about tonight before I get into what I am going to talk about, right? So this book is about sensory perception. In other words, it's about the experience that your head creates for you of the world, right? And how you can hack it. And the starting point of this book on page two, basically, is the idea that there is no one single reality. And once you get over that idea, the rest of the book is just a long coast downhill, right? So what I mean by that is there is no one single concrete experience that we all share. And when you think about it, that makes sense because we're all genetically different. Our bodies and our brains are all different. But it also makes sense because perception is extremely malleable, right? Your brain has to deal with much more information than it could process individually. So your brain has to filter. And the way you filter, the way you learn to attend to certain things is different. There are a lot of, of factors that change that. And most of all, your senses are limited. So we only have five portals, right? You have sight, you have sound, you have smell, taste, and touch. But we know that there's more information in the world that we can't pick up. How do we know? Because other animals can sense it, right? So sharks can sense electricity. We can't. We don't have the right gear. We only see the spectrum we call visible light. But we know that there's more information outside of it. There's the infrared, which some kinds of animals like the pit viper can sense. And there's the ultraviolet, which the honeybee can sense. Helps them land on the right flower, right? And we know that there are magnetic fields and lots of animals that migrate north-south can sense magnetic fields, right? Sea turtles, certain kinds of fish, the monarch butterfly. There's even evidence that some kind of bacteria can do that, not because they migrate, but because they need to orient themselves in the mud that they live in, right? So when I met with a group of biohackers called Grindhouse Wetware, they were out in Pennsylvania, they were really mad about this. They were frustrated, right? They were saying, why can't we sense the infrared, right? What's so great about the mantis shrimp and the honeybee, right? Why couldn't we see a sunset in infrared and ultraviolet? So they and other people like them are experimenting on their own bodies. They're trying to expand or enhance their senses. And they were kind of an extreme of the people that I met, but they were part of a much broader field of endeavor, right? These are, this is a book, it's 11 stories about people who are all pushing the limits of sensory perception. So I met soldiers, I met surgeons, I met perfumers, I met picklers, I met clockmakers, some of them in this room. I met, <laughs> I met people who build robots and I met neuroscientists, right? And let me give you an example of some of the people I met. I met Dean Lloyd, 
who's one of the first people on the planet who has ever relearned how to see. He volunteered to receive one of the first retinal implants. So Dean was born with vision. He lost it as an adult because he developed a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. He volunteered for this study to have a chip that is actually inside the back of his eyeball that translates images from a camera into electronic signals that give him a perception of vision. So he had to relearn how to see. It's not what he saw before, but it's enough that he can get around. I met Sherry Wren, who's the surgeon who drives that surgical robot you saw. And I watched her remove somebody's gallbladder from the other side of the room. And the amazing thing about that is that robot gives her no touch feedback. She's doing it all visually. But there are uh, mechanical engineers who are trying to give her that sense of touch back. And the reason it's important is not just for robotic surgery, but because enabling a haptic robotic limb that can not only move, but touch is the step that you need in order to develop a thought-controlled neuroprosthetic limb that can grasp and render touch feedback in real time, right? So a person knows what they're picking up. They know how hard they're gripping it. I went to a military base in Colorado. That's where you saw me driving the Humvee to learn about using virtual reality to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. The idea is, can you create a virtual environment so real that it tricks the mind into healing? Can you re-expose somebody to a traumatic situation in VR and have them heal from that? And in fact, when I was there, they were trying to pre-treat soldiers. They, they were working with a group that was about to deploy. And the idea is, can we put you in traumatic situations now, teach you coping mechanisms in VR, and then see if it makes you less likely to develop PTSD when you come back, right? So this book is called We Have the Technology. I make the argument that technology does not only mean stuff that lights up, even though that's cool. So some of the chapters are about other things that have to do with different kinds of technology. So the chapter about smell is about a group at a hospital in Paris that's using perfume to help people with Alzheimer's recover lost memories. Because it turns out that differentiating between different scents is the first clinical symptom of Alzheimer's, also of Parkinson's disease. Uh, the chapter of pain is about medicine, specifically Tylenol. The idea is, can you use a painkiller that's meant for physical pain for the pain of social rejection? In other words, does your brain process the pain of a broken heart and the pain of a broken bone the same way? The answer so far seems to be yes, right? So for what I wanted to talk to you about tonight, it's a different kind of technology, and I think you're going to get it. My story starts with the, scent, the search for a sixth taste. And it starts here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And yes, those are child-sized lab coats, <laughs> the most adorable thing in the universe. So they, this is a really great museum. The kids get to do all these things where they, they like can extract the DNA from wheat germ. They can measure how much sugar they have in cereals. The, the part of the lab that I was in was around the corner in this thing called the uh, Genetics of Taste Lab. And this is a citizen science-powered lab. Um, so my guide for the day was a retired dentist named Mark, Mike Archer, and this was the stuff we had to work with. So this is a DNA swab. This is where I donated my DNA to science. Uh, those are some oyster crackers and some water in case I tasted something that was very repellent. Uh, that is a timer, and I will tell you about the rest in a minute. It will make sense in a minute. So, oh, wait, one more thing. These. These are my nose plugs. <laughs> Very important in taste research because it ensures that you can, you can taste but you can't smell. So Mike Archer, when I met him, he's wearing this very dentist-like lab coat, and I say, why do you have it? He says, oh, the kids like it, right? But even though the lab coat was kind of sh for show, the science that we were about to do there 
was real. Um, if it works, it's going to shed some light on one of the biggest mysteries in sensory science, which is we're going to see if I can taste fat, right? Not bacon, not cream, fat, right? Uh, specifically, this fat. <laughs> this is linoleic acid. This is an uh, omega-6 uh, polyunsaturated uh, fatty acid. And taste researchers who are investigating this think there are pretty good reasons why humans should be able to taste fat. So it's essential to our food supply. It's used by the brain. It's used by the immune system. They say there's a good reason why your body should be able to pick it out in its environment, right? So scientists currently divide taste into five basics or primaries. These will look very familiar to you, I'm sure. Salty, sweet, bitter, umami, also known as savory, and sour. Right? And these are considered the building blocks of taste, things that you cannot break apart, you cannot subdivide, just the way on the color wheel, blue or red are considered primaries or basics. Right? A scientist said to me, you cannot subdivide sweet. Sweetness is a thing unto itself. Right? But some of you might remember, those of you who, like me, went to school in the last century, remember a time when there was only four, right? So this idea of umami or savory only made the list in the year 2000. For people who are still like, what is that? It's usually the flavor that's associated with things, very savory things like Parmesan cheese, caramelized onions, a slow-cooked tomato paste would be considered umami. So that's in the United States. This concept was actually, uh, was actually um, uh, named in 1908 in Japan by a scientist named Dr. Kikunai Akita who said it is a fifth taste and it's associated with the amino acid glutamate, right? Just the way sugar is associated with sweet, salt with salt. He says glutamate is what's responsible for MSG. Um, when this was accepted in the Western world around the year 2000, it kind of upended the taste research world, right? If there were five now, why not six? Why not seven? Why not a thousand, right? It's kind of like where we are right now with taste research is the where astronomy was at the end of the 17th century when astronomers were like, oh, uh, okay, Jupiter. What if there's something out beyond Jupiter, right? What if our system is bigger than we thought it was? So fat is championed by Dr. Rick Mattis, who's a nutrition scientist at Purdue University. And what's weird is there is actually no list of what you have to do to be considered a basic taste. So he made one, which people like. So here's the basic ideas. First of all, there has to be a receptor for it on the tongue. There has to be something that locks with a certain molecule. And they believe there are two for fatty acid. Uh, They're called CD36 and GPR120. Okay, nerves. It has to get to the brain along the right nervous pathway. It has to go along the gustatory nerve. So this is tricky because your mouth also has nerves in it. Whoops, pardon me. Uh, your mouth also has nerves in it for touch. When it comes to food, this is what we call mouthfeel, right? That things feel creamy or they feel crunchy or whatever. And so people sometimes say, why isn't spicy a basic taste? Or why isn't cool a basic taste? It's because that's actually touch. It's a feeling. It's actually pain in the case of, of uh, spiciness. Okay, has to have a purpose. I know I wrote that in yellow so nobody can see it. Uh, it has to have a purpose. And the idea is, well, not, not everybody agrees with it, but usually they'll say, okay, basic tastes are either attractive or aversive. So the idea with sweet is it's attractive, it shows you where the calories are, so you want to eat it. Uh, the idea with umami is that it shows you where the protein is. It's what amino acids are in, so that's good to eat it. Um, bitter things are usually poisonous, toxic, so don't eat it. With salt and with sourness, People disagree, but they think it's either a matter of concentration or satiety. 
In other words, you like a little bit, but you don't like a lot, or you like it when you, your body needs it, and then you reject it when it's too much. Okay, must have a physiological reaction. This one's a little bit trickier. So Mattis says your body has to do something in reaction to it. With fat, a lot of fats are these giant blocks called triglycerides. Mattis says there is a, a, a salivary enzyme that, called lipase that basically chips free fatty acids off this big block. That's what can lock into the receptors on your tongue. They know that mice make this, uh, uh, this enzyme and they can taste fat because when they block it, mice stop preferring the fat, right? But do humans have it? And so in his human experience, experiments, what he does is he makes people chew hard fats like coconut and soft fats like olive oil, and then he measures how much lipase they produce. So chew the hard fat, you salivate more, you get more of this lipase. There, that, he says, is the physiological reaction. All right, here's the thing we care about. Can anybody actually sense the darn thing, right? And can they, can they actually distinguish it from the other five that we have? So that's why I went to the museum, right? And that's where you come in. We're going to try an experiment based on the museum's experiment. We're going to see if this works. We're going to see if people can taste fat. So, Michael, do you have the fat strips queued up somewhere? Yeah, yeah. okay, awesome. Um, so the, the museum was very, very kind to send us some examples of the fat strips that I tried. We're going to see if this works because they have traveled a great distance and success is not guaranteed. So don't eat anything yet. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, all right, we'll see if this happens. So, um, so what you'll see in these cups when you get it is an almost invisible little strip. It looked to me kind of like onion skin. This is, has anybody ever used a melt-away melt breath strip before? Yeah, this is the same thing. Except instead of having like mouthwash in it, it has linoleic acid. <laughs> um, these are a little crumbly. If you find one that's broken, that's okay. Uh, all that matters is, is that you taste it. So, does everybody have one? There's still some more coming out. Okay, we're gonna see if this works. Okay, so so here's how it's gonna go. Don't do it quite yet, but I don't have nose clips for you. So you're going to have to, yes, exactly, do this. Mimic it yourself. Then plug your nose, put the fat strip in. You want it to be pretty, back pretty far on your tongue. And then we're just going to let it dissolve for 45 seconds, right? 45 seconds. And just see what you see. Okay, now before it's gone, unplug your nose and see if that changes anything for you. All right, that's 45. All right, anybody taste anything? Yeah? What'd you get? Sort of a smooth little tang on the end of it. All right, yeah? Okay, anybody else? Sorry? Like, 
Like meat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Did you did you say something right here? Yeah, okay, right. Ooh, candle wax, interesting. After taste of chicken skin. <laughs> after taste of chicken skin. Okay, anybody else get anything that was really different? It was like starchy water after boiled pasta. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Did, for anybody, did you find the experience change when you unplugged your nose? Yeah, so for people, how did it change? For those of you where it changed? Yeah, well, it is, it is on this wafer thing, right? Yeah, who said bitter? Bitter. Bitter, bitter. Oh, this isn't, you're my people, right? Because <laughs> that's the experience I had too. But this is real, oh man, this is so interesting. Okay, so I'm really glad it worked. I was a little bit worried that the strips might not have survived the journey. <laughs> okay, so here's why I, I said plug your nose first and then, and then afterwards. It's because... This is the grossest picture I could find of what the inside of your head looks like. Found this on a doctor's office. Um, so what most people think of as taste is actually more accurately called flavor. It's the combined work of the nose and the mouth working together. So when you eat, basically scent molecules kind of travel up this back passageway to your nose and your brain processes them in combination. This is why when you have a cold, food really sucks, right? Because you can't, you're, you're not getting that half of the equation. Right? So here's what happened to me when I was at the museum. Um, what did you sense? We had a whole wide variety of experiences here. This was my first reaction. I was with the people who said, bitter, but here's the problem. That is already another basic taste, right? So they said, okay, guess again. And I said, acid. And the problem is, that's already essentially another basic taste, right? And here is where I ran into the second secret purpose of the museum study. It wasn't to see if people can taste fat. It was to see if we can describe how fat tastes. Because it turns out this isn't necessarily a biochemistry problem. It's a word problem, right? The technology here for taste is language. Yeah, right? So this is a really interesting idea. So the problem hinges on this. How can you perceive something if you don't have a word and therefore an established concept for it? right? So in order to recognize a new basic taste, our tongue is not going to change in our lifetimes, but our minds can. We can learn to discern a separate, unique quality in the foods that we've been eating all along. And there's actually uh, a sensory science precedent for this. It has to do with the world of vision. It's the idea of isolating a new color. Did any of you ever blow your minds when you were a kid by trying to figure out what a new color might be? I totally have, right? So the idea is there are certain cultures in the world where the language has not built separate words for blue and for green. It doesn't mean that people can't see both blue and green. It doesn't mean their eye is different. It doesn't mean they can't perceive that wavelength. It means when they're looking at this rainbow, they perceive blue and green as one experience. And people who have a language that separates blue and green perceive them as two. Do we have any Russian speakers here tonight? I was, at, I was speaking about this with somebody who is a native Russian speaker, and she said, actually, in Russian, we split blue into two different words, two different concepts, one that's kind of a cyan and one that's kind of an indigo blue, and those to us would be two discrete categories of things, right? 
There was a German philologist named Lazarus Geiger who did this very interesting research in the 19th century where he examined ancient texts from various languages, and he saw that languages tended to develop words for colors in the same order. So it's black and white first, then red, then yellow, then green, then blue, right? And at the time, he thought maybe this is actually anatomical evolution. Maybe people's eyes are actually changing. But today, people read it as, you know, it's actually either a cultural or a linguistic adaptation. Either people have come up with the concept of the color and invented a word for it, or the other way around. They've invented the word and learned to perceive the color as separate, right? And where you are kind of depends on where you are in that debate. So maybe fat has been in the taste rainbow all along, and we just don't have the word to pick it out, right? We default to its nearest neighbor, which for some of us might have been bitter or sour, and for some of you might have been meaty or savory or something like umami, right? So when I talked to Dr. Nicole Garneau, who's the Denver Museum's curator of, hum of human health, she's the person who set up this experiment, she said, oh, this is a total word problem. We couldn't even put out a press release. It was hard to figure out what to call this thing, right? They ended up calling it fatty acid taste, but she says it's accurate, but, but what does it mean? Nobody cares. Nobody has a mental percept for what fatty acid should taste like. So what they're doing at the museum is essentially crowdsourcing. So they don't just ask you, can you taste it? They ask you to describe how it tastes. The idea is, can the 1,500 people who undertake this experiment kind of collectively come up with other words that other people will recognize for how fat tastes, right? So... Here were my very helpful contributions to taste science. For taste, these were my words, cleaner, solvent, and PVC pipe. You know, you know, I immediately went to metaphor. I could not think of an adjective for it. And for the smell, it was shoe polish, stale air, and luggage. That was as close as I got. I asked them if they would share with me their preliminary results. So here are the results from the first about 700 people as of last April. So the top three for taste were bitter, buttery, and nothing, which is actually pretty much like what people said in this room, right? And for smell, it was nothing, paper, and cardboard, which, again, is very much like what some people said in this room. And I said, okay, give me the outliers. I want to know the weird ones. <laughs> and then for taste, it was rotten icing, ocean water, dandelions, and gummy bears. And for smell, it was seaweed, pine nuts, stamp books, and bricks, right? So why? Why might there be this... Uh, oh, oh, I should say also there was an extra phase of the experiment we did at the museum that we couldn't replicate here. We did what's called scaling tests. They gave us four wafers that each had a different amount of the linoleic acid in it, including some that were the placebo. They had nothing. And then they would say rate it on a scale of 0 to 10. How strong is this taste? And from those scaling tests, they found out, yeah, actually people are very good at accurately saying uh, which ones are stronger and which ones are weaker. And they actually found that women and girls were more sensitive, and for a reason I can't explain, kids seem to be better at picking it out than adults were. So possibly one reason for this variation, at least gender variation, is the gene that's related to it. So the CD36 gene has 84,000 base pairs. That is really gnarly and huge. And by contrast, the TAS2R38 gene, which is one of the genes involved in bitter, only has about 1,000. So that's a lot of opportunities for differences in, in mutation or gene expression, right? Um, 
For the record, I asked Dr. Richard Mattis if he could describe fat, how fat tastes, and this is what he said. He said, no, no I can't. It's awful, period. It sucks the air out of your lungs. It's just terrible, nauseating. It's rancidity. It's really, really bad cooking oil, the sensation that gives you. And he says, at first, most people default to something like bitter, but he says he doesn't think that's actually the word. It's just a way of saying that it's bad, right? So, and I said, okay, why? Why, do we, why should this be so gross? Especially because most fatty foods, if you think about it, are very, very pleasant to eat, right? Like ice cream, bacon, right? And he says, okay, fat, the texture of fat, the mouthfeel of fat should be pleasant because we need to eat fat. That's good for us. But free fatty acids are generated when food spoils. And he says, so it should be aversive. You should actually, no, no, I, I don't want to eat this. It could make me sick. Now, there's another X factor, which... Uh, is that people are enormously suggestible when it comes to the flavor of things. And Dr. Garneau, is a, she's a geneticist. Her background is in yeasts. So she works with a lot of winemakers and, uh, and beer makers. And uh, she goes to a lot of events where there is wine and beer. And she was telling me a story about she and her husband were at a wine tasting. And her husband, just to see what would happen, said, ah, oh, this, this has a real gunpowder quality to it. And then to her horror, other people in the room start saying, oh, yes, yes, I can taste the gunpowder, right? <laughs> and she says, um, she says when, when somebody tosses out an unlikely term, when you're trying to figure out a taste, you're going to latch onto it. Your brain's going to be like, yes, that's it, because I can't come up with the language. And that's just for things that are familiar, like wine. When we're faced with a potential six basic taste, a really abstract concept, she says, now we're talking about a topic we literally have no language about. So it's compounded. Your brain wants to solve. Your brain so much wants to solve this puzzle of what it's tasting, and it doesn't have the language. So whatever anyone throws out there, you're going to be like, yes, that is it, right? So that's what they're up against. I, I want to just give you a couple of other ideas very briefly that I introduce in this chapter, uh, which is... One of the, the other problem that they're up against is that taste science, like most uh, uh, sciences that have to do with perception, used to be about the mind. They used to be psychological and behavioral sciences. So the way you studied these things was you took a person or an animal and you gave them a stimulus and then you saw what happened, right? So with food, you would give them a food and then you would see, do they like it? Do they eat more of it? Do they avoid it? Do they spit it out, right? Within the last two decades, this became an almost entirely biochemical science. The whole idea of what people are studying moved from the brain, from what happens in the mind, to what happens on the tongue, this moment when a chemical locks into a receptor. It's a huge shift. All of the people that I talked to had trained in behavioral science and psychology, and now we're working in a biochemical world. So the first family of bitter receptors was only described in the year 2000. And when I say family, there are actually 25 of them. And there's this cool debate going on right now in the taste science world where they say, look, if it's 25 receptors, does that mean there are 25 different bitters, right? Could we learn to discriminate between, say, like the bitter of alcohol, the bitter of quinine, the, the bitterness of vegetables, right? That is a really interesting question that the field is, is uh, wrestling with right now. So the receptor for sweet only came along in the year 2001. The ones for umami came along in the year 2000 and 2002. And that was kind of the thing that clinched it for everybody. Everybody said this, this idea, this crazy idea that people in Japan have been talking about for a century, it's real, we can prove it because we found a receptor, and that's what unleashed the hunt for the sixth taste, right? So here are some of the other contenders that I went out to taste. 
This is calcium, uh, which once again is something that your body needs for your immune system, for bones. Water. There are people who say water is a taste, a unique taste of its own. Carbon dioxide. There are some labs that are working into whether you can taste it separate from the texture of carbonation bubbles. This is this really weird mystery. This is some polycoast. It's something only rats and mice can taste. So there's pretty good evidence that rats and mice can distinguish between three different kinds of sweet. Basically, they can tell the difference between long starch changes, medium, and short ones. And the scientist who's holding this, uh, Dr. Uh, Michael Tordoff from the Monell Chemical Census Center, is saying, nobody can figure out why this man-made thing should be so nice for a rat. But they love it, right? I actually ate some. I was like, could I have some polycos, please? And <laughs> it tasted like ground styrofoam. I got, I got nothing out of it. And then this... You know how I said it was like astronomers after this discovery of Jupiter? This is, this is Pluto. This is the thing that nobody can agree whether or not it's a legitimate contender. This is a powder called Kokumi powder. And the people who are behind Kokumi say, uh, they stop short of calling it a, a taste. They say it's an effect or a phenomenon. And the idea is it is a basic taste or a basic taste phenomenon that makes the other basic tastes taste better. Tastes like nothing on its own, but it enhances the other. So they say it makes sweet sweeter, salt saltier, savory savorier. And the people who are researching it are kind of researching it as a food substitute additive. Like, could you make things saltier without actually putting a lot of sodium in the food? Now, a lot of scientists in the United States say, this is weird. We don't get it. This is their, their like, eh, emperor's new clothes, right? But the company that's doing the research for this is a Japanese food uh, company called Ajinomoto, which became the first company to endorse and spread the idea of umami and has been making MSG since 1909. So Ajinomoto has a pretty amazing track record of, uh, of discovering six tastes in the face of, of Western skepticism. So I'll just leave you with two questions regarding the taste chapter, and then I'm going to show you some biohackers, right? Which is... Um, what changed in our lifetimes that we've been able to now taste umami? It, just 20 years ago, right, most of us had not heard of this thing. Now umami is kind of a fetish. I don't know, has anybody been to Umami Burger? It's a whole chain based around umami, right? Uh, umami Mart in, in Oakland, right? Uh, people who like umami really like umami. So what changed? What happened to us that in our lifetime we adapted to it? And then the other question is, how did it happen in Japan a century earlier? Right? Yes. So in the Laszlo research, the reason that blue is supposed to be last is not because we don't see blue, the sky and the ocean right. are blue, but that we didn't have artificial blue. Yeah, I've blue. heard that. So polycoast or anything where you can say, there's a, if there was a Girl Scout cookie that tasted like fatty acids, people might say, that's, you know, Mont or whatever it was called. So you, you need an artificial version of it you need an exemplar, right? Yeah. And in my book, I argue that in Japan, the exemplar is this thing that I very poorly portrayed here, which is a broth called dashi, right? So um, I want to show you really quickly something about the search for a sixth sense. I started out with the grindhouse in their basement, uh, and these are guys who are very frustrated with the limitations of the human body, right? They say, look, it's not so great. Um, if you had to engineer it, this is not what you would come up with, right? They said it's a bad platform for supporting consciousness. And look, you get sick, you get die. You die uh, uh, Tim Cannon, who's the head of the Grindhouse, said, I would like my lifespan to be decoupled from my bacon intake, right? So <laughs> this is Tim, uh, and, and so he's the founder, one of the uh, leaders 
of Grindhouse Wetware. This is literally the Grindhouse, which is his basement. Um, and when I met Tim, they were working on this concept called Circadia. So this is a very blurry picture of Circadia on a breadboard. Um, this is a better picture of Circadia as a floor model. Our friend Otto very kindly drew it for us, right? So the idea of this is that it's a temperature sensor. So here's Circadia in Tim's arm. It's about the size of a deck of cards. And if I can make this work, I will show you what Circadia does. Oops, wait, hang on. So he's charging it. Yeah, so he's holding a charging coil up to his arm. Oh. <laughs> I asked him to do it again because I moved the camera. But you can see, there it goes. He's saying I got the signal. So this Circadia was a test concept. What it does is it takes Tim's temperature and it ports that information via Bluetooth to his cell phone, right? So he can kind of look at it and go, hmm, what's going on, right? Um, you might say, what does that have to do with sensory perception? It has nothing to do with sensory perception. This is basically to make sure that Tim didn't die. They wanted to see if they could build it, put it in his arm, if it would breach, if something would leak, um, if he would develop a massive infection, if it would pop out of his skin. You saw it's it's pretty big, it's close to the skin. The corners are perhaps not as rounded as he would ultimately have liked it to have been, right? Um, but it was, a, it was kind of a trial device to see if they could build it. It took him about three years, he wore it for three months, then they realized that the, it was expanding, the battery was expanding due to the heat of the charging coil, so they took it out. Also, people ask me, did they put it in themselves? No, they went to a professional piercer slash body modder to do it. So when I met them, they were working on something that really would be a sensory perception hack. They were working on this idea for a device called North Star. And the idea for North Star is that it would be a compass that would go in the back of your hand and it would light up when you faced north. So that was the idea. So this is where they were with North Star when I was there. That was it. Wires and a soldering iron, right? This is North Star maybe about a year ago. This was their first demo model. You can see it's about the size of a quarter. This is North Star ready for implant, and this was North Star this Thanksgiving. So yeah, so this is Justin Wurst who sent us these pictures. He has it in his hand. This version lights up, but it doesn't actually have the compass element in it. That's gonna be the next version. So that's where they are now. They've made it, they've built it. There are about five or six people who have it, and that's as far as they've gotten. So that's it, that's it for me. I'd be happy to take some questions if you have some. Yeah. Do you want me to? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to ask you a couple things, and we'll get some questions from the audience. So, um, so as I mentioned earlier, I think what's one thing that's really interesting about your book is you you really go deep on the science, and you in in a lot of different sciences, but you're also um, really channeling the personalities of a lot of these individuals. So. Uh, is there a takeaway on, on who are the, the people that are searching for the, the scientists and the biohackers? Is there, what, what brings them together? Is there, is there something that you would see? You know, you okay. Found in all of them? So the 
the biohackers who were, who were well known to each other were brought together by this kind of semi-boiling sense of frustration, mostly, right? We could be better, but we're not. Not just that the human body isn't what they would hoped, but nobody was building the stuff they wanted. So Grindhouse takes its name from the, uh, the Dr. Sleepless graphic novel by Warren Ellis, right? Which is kind of about this, like, post punker future where people build their own augments because the future isn't, isn't cool enough, right? But, um, but that's, this was not the case with a lot of the people that are, who are also researching in this field. So medical researchers are doing it because they want to help people who have very serious conditions for which there is no other cure. So I didn't talk specifically about them tonight, but a lot of the people who are doing sensory research are working not only on blindness and deafness, but things like Lou Gehrig's disease, stroke, uh, uh, locked-in syndrome, other things that would prevent people from talking and moving, uh, and they want to help. Now, the thing is, these people do not talk to one another, right? Because there are insurance reasons why people wouldn't want to talk to one another. They consider some of the stuff that biohackers are doing risky. They don't know each other. When I showed a neuroscientist this giant circadia, he said, we could build that in my lab way cheaper and way smaller. And I said, yeah, but that's because you have grant money, right? These guys are doing it with zero dollars. So I felt my role in a weird way was being like the plague rat who carries ideas around from lab to lab. I would go in and say like, uh, hey, Dr. So-and-so, check this thing out. And they'd say, oh, that's cool. And then I'd say, okay, how do you think it's working? And he'd say, oh, well, it's probably this. And I'd go back to the grinders and I'd be like, okay, look, Dr. So-and-so says anything <laughs> <laughs> is what's going on, right? So they're not talking to one another. And some people were very, very frustrated with this, especially like kind of in the piercer and body uh, artist world. They were saying, look, like if... if if doctors and surgeons were, would work with us, we could work safer, we could do cooler things, we would have, we would have their, their knowledge. And, uh, and then, of course, the, the biohackers are also very concerned that a lot of what's being developed, especially in virtual and augmented reality, is being developed for profit by companies that will never share their IP. They'll never tell you how the device is built, what's inside it, what its capabilities are, what its limits are. So, yeah, so basically it was weird, silos of people who were not talking to one another. So, um, and so we're going we're gonna to open up to questions here, but let's, let's just do a quick tour. So you went deep on a couple chapters, but yeah. you also looked at virtual reality, augmented reality, all of the senses. Um, what's your, because your, uh, your niche is as a science journalist, yeah. right? And that's, I mean, obviously you're really passionate about that. What's your own science background and are you studying up as you go or do you have a lot of background on this? It's just... So I've been a, so I don't have a science degree. I have a sociology degree, a social science degree, but, but not a biochemistry degree or anything like that. I've been a science reporter here in the Bay Area for about 20 years. I was at the East Bay Express for a long time. I was at a magazine called Terrain for a few years, which sadly folded. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of freelance work. In, there's more than 100 people interviewed for this book. Only six of them were people that I'd ever met before in my travel. So I was really on a huge learning curve, uh, which was fun. For me, yeah. So I was not playing to my strong suit here. Okay. Uh, what questions do we have out in the audience? Who's got a question? Stumped. Right, you go questions here. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. There we go. Great. We got a we got a microphone so, for you. Uh, here we go. Oh, and and I should uh, give a shout out to the folks at home. We've got uh, and and thanks to Edward Bertinsky and Anthropocene Film uh, who are sponsoring our live stream. We've got folks listening. Uh, at home right now. So uh, the, the microphone helps them hear your question, too. Go ahead. Has, has, did you run across any senses that don't enter consciousness? Ah, okay. So one of the arguments, actually, is that with taste, you sense things, but they don't enter consciousness. 
right? Like you, you sense fat subliminally and it never rises to the level of consciousness. Um, there's a real, a lot of the last part of this book is about uh, biohackers who are trying to see if they can sense electromagnetic fields. Uh, a lot of animals have this gear that lets them sense electromagnetic fields. I delve very briefly into do humans have it? Have they ever had it? Do we even have this kind of like vestigial sense of, of electromagnetic fields? That is vaguely related to that argument. I don't, I don't buy it personally, but there are people who, who've asked if we have that for that. It, it, and it's, there, there are a bunch of touchstones with other long now things in your, or, or people we've had speak for us. We had um, uh, the speaker last year whose, whose book, or 20, 2014, whose book, Deep, talked about people with echolocation. You touch oh, yeah. briefly on the fact that some blind people have, have used, uh, found echolocation. They've taught themselves to how to do it. Yeah. There's a guy who has a school. He will teach you how to use, uh, he calls it, oh, something sonar. But he, he uses uh, like a click sound to figure out where he is in space and navigate around with it. All right. Another, uh, yep. That reminds me, because that's basically built on top of sound, mm -hmm. that I was taught at some point, I can't remember where, that the other sense was proprioception, which is Put just... Your, uh, a yeah. little closer to your mouth. Is on. So, the, yeah, so the question is, is there another sense called proprioception, right? Which is just, so it's like the echolocation, which is the positions of things in a room, the position of your body relative to the space all around it. We're doing it all now in our seats. Do people who study senses consider those higher level aggregations oh, of senses as senses? Even because you're not really conscious of it, but if you bump into things all the time, it's because you have bad proprioception. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna seriously nerd on you, right? Okay. So there is a concept called range extension or range expansion. The idea is. We're talking about the same sense, but some animals have a bigger range, right? This is why dogs can hear higher up the scale than you do. It's not a different sense. It's still hearing, right? When we're talking about echolocation or biosonar, right, it's not a different sense. They are still using hearing. They're just using it in a way that humans do not naturally do, right? You can teach yourself to do it, but it's not something that we're born knowing how to do, right? Now, you bring up the example of proprioception. Proprioception means your sense of where your body is in space. It's what lets you do this with your eyes closed, right? I know where my arm is. So some researchers categorize that as a subset of touch. And there's this weird wiggle room, actually, with touch. Um, some people consider pain to be a subset of touch as well. In the book, I make an argument that actually it's what's, uh, what I refer to as a polysensory experience or a metasensory experience, meaning that it takes information from multiple channels and creates this experience that you have in your head. Uh, and the reason I argue that it's not purely touch is because, for example, a light shining uh, really bright in your eye would be painful. Uh, a scientist said to me, a gunshot near your ear would be painful, and those aren't touch, but it is pain, right? So there's this, all these weird divisions about how do you slice it? And I, when I would look at old textbooks, they would slice it up differently, so I do think there's, it's moved around a bit. But that was a cool question. <laughs> so my question... Oh, um, yeah, you're good. So um, were you able to interview anyone that talked about synesthesia or had experience with synesthesia? Like, what level do you have those wires that get crossed? Are they crossed? Are they the same? Yeah. Man, I wish I did. That was the chapter I didn't do. Actually, there were two chapters I didn't do. One was space, because I did time, and I thought, man... Time was pretty awesome. We don't need space. And then synesthesia would have been the other thing, right? Is there, does anybody here consider themselves a synesthesia? Me too. So, like, you would maybe do you, like, see colors associated with letters or words? 
very common form of synesthesia. So I'm not an expert, and I thought maybe that's somebody else's book. Yeah, so I didn't do it. Um, the, the closest I got was uh, I met a lot of biohackers who have these magnets implanted in them. And I would say, what is that experience like for you? And people would say it's kind of a synesthesia in that it kind of combines elements of touch with elements of something else that I don't know how to describe. That's as close as I got to it. So, so you, you mentioned uh, your, yourself as Playgrat. <laughs> the, yeah, the, Playgrat. <laughs> the, 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 you're also, like with the taste thing, you're, you're navigating through uh, unsettled science in, yeah. in a lot of cases and, and flipping back and forth between um, all kinds of folks that are doing. Uh, is, what, what would you say of, of the whole book? Is there something in particular that you that's kind of the aha moment that, that, that may be kind of rising above uh, uh, just reporting on things? You may have, have you come to any conclusions that uh, hmm. beyond the researchers as you're putting together the different pieces of the puzzle they're, they're doing? Any examples of that? You know, so one of the things that kept coming up was this ethical question of should we mess with the body or should we invent devices that give ourselves sensory superpowers? Should we kind of keep human as human, right? And it comes up a lot with, I hear people being like, I see people being like, yeah, no, yes, or modify, right? This whole question of what is a cyborg kept coming up over and over. So, um, so I, I, I met a lot of people who were very on the cutting edge of cyborg. I met uh, Rob Spence, iBorg, who has a camera that's actually built into his eye socket. And um, I met a lot of people who had implanted things in their bodies. And when I would ask uh, them, is it okay to modify the body? They say, heck yeah, it's yours, right? You would do it if it was a car, right? And then I would go talk to other people, especially from the disabilities community, where a lot of assistive technologies go to the disabilities community first. And they'd say, you have to be very, very careful about thinking about what you make into a normal body. Right? Because you keep raising the expectation of what normal is and what a productive person can do. And there's a lot of coding built into that. Right? Um, so I kind of kept coming up against this question of are we cyborgs or not? Where might you draw the line? A lot of the people in the kind of pro-cyborg community would say, look, you wear clothes, you wear shoes, you are a cyborg, you're not built with them, they augment you against the weather, this is normal. I started to think, man, there's a lot of things that I've done to my body, even though I consider myself pretty unmodified, I've been vaccinated, right? Like, I don't die when I'm exposed to the, to the measles virus. I have... I have fillings in my teeth. I don't get cavities anymore in those teeth. You know, and, and nobody considers this very, very extraordinary. And I think the, the moment where it kind of all crystallized for me is I was talking to a guy who builds smart glasses. And he basically said, look, we're at a point where we can self-evolve, right? If I'm going to do something that can give me an advantage that the other guy doesn't have, heck yes, I'm going to do it. And he said, this is what humankind has done all along since basically we tamed fire. This is just what people do, right? And, I th and that's kind of where for me I thought, you know what? It's not different. It's just, it's more pervasive. It's more subtle. You can wear it on the body. You can wear it in the body. The main question is not, do we, do we hack ourselves? Do we give ourselves technology? The question is, when will it get to the point where we've so subtly altered ourselves that we don't know that it's on, right? I think for me, that's the big difference. Um, any, oh, great. Uh, I have a two-parter. Uh, first, what was the most interesting VR-related experience that you had or that you saw? Yeah. And secondly, what do you want out of VR? Like, what, it, like having seen it, what do you, where do you want it to go? Oh, that's cool. Okay, so um, for, for VR, I kind of had experiences with two labs. I wanted to do this kind of hard 
super realistic experience, which was the military experience, where they really try to simulate what it's like to be in combat. So um, in the travel lab I saw, we just wore goggles, but if you went into their real lab, they would, they would pump in smells, they would vibrate the floor to emulate kind of driving, uh, motor shaking explosions and stuff like that. And then I went to this lab at Stanford called the Virtual Human Interaction Lab, which is like the magic realism side of the VR world. And they are really inspired by Jaron Lanier and kind of this idea of alternate bodies. So one of the things that I did in there was they never told me what I was going to do. They just said, come to the lab. And I, I got there one day and they said, get down on all fours and wear these like infrared markers. They put them on my back and they put them on my arms. Like, okay, fine. And they snapped on the VR and I was a cow. Right? And I was like, okay. <laughs> what, what, they're, what they're experimenting with is Jaron Lanier kind of famously asked this question of why do you have to have a human body in virtual reality, right? And he said, imagine that you're a, a lobster. Okay, you drive arm one with this arm, you drive arm two with this arm, how do you drive the rest of the arms, right? So the question is how, how well can you adapt to these novel bodies? So they put me in a cow. And I could see my cow doppelganger across from me because it's actually very hard to wear a helmet and crawl around on the floor and look at your own body as a cow body. So they did, we did all of these things that kind of bonded me to the cow. Like, do this, and the cow would do that, right? And then they said, okay, here's your job. You have to gain all of this weight so you reach a certain number of pounds. Okay. So I, I go over and I eat. I go over and I drink. And then they say, go back to your starting point because now we're going to send you to the slaughterhouse. Right? And then the floor starts to shake, and this truck, like, it starts making that beep, 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 backup noises, and I freaked out, right? I can hear myself. I have a tape of myself, and, and in it, I'm yelling, this is brutal, right? Like, at no one in particular, and, and VR is like being on stage. You're not supposed to break the illusion, you know, of the fourth wall. I am really scared, and it's because, basically, I have come to emphasize with this other that quickly, right? Like I feel so responsible for this other imaginary being. And that turns out to be what they were trying to test. In the real experiment, what they would have done afterwards is kind of put me through all of these uh, batteries of tests to gauge how I felt about animals and how likely I was to donate to animal rights causes. And that was, a, like, that was a real experience. It was very visceral. And the other things that they did after that is they made me a coral because they wanted to see what, how people would behave in a body that's even un more unlike yourself. So like a, like a C, C. And then they did a thing where they gave me a third arm. And the idea was how quickly would I learn how to drive a third arm? And I'll tell you, it happened like that. It was, okay, so in VR, the third arm is coming out of my chest and I'm wearing controllers on my wrist. They didn't tell me how to drive it. They just said, make your third arm move. They said, tap that thing. It was just like that. It was an amazing experience. Yeah. Did I answer all the... Well, I was going to ask, where, where do you want to go next? Like, now that you've tried these awesome things, like, what do you think you're doing next um, up? Yeah, step big for question. Virtual for virtual reality. Um, both of these labs were trying to do things for basically for pro-social reasons to help people, right? To either prevent a disorder, cure a disorder, or kind of make people more empathetic with their environment and with other people. I thought that was a, pro a really like awesome application of VR. They were talking about using it for, with students. Could you bring students in and instead of reading about global warming and the effect on ocean life, would you be able to empathize with, with ocean life? I thought that was a cool idea. Um, the big question for me is how long does that effect last, 
right? So I would love to see more research that shows how long what happens in VR lingers in your real life. That was an awesome question, thank you. All right, uh, one more from right up here. Um, it, it seems like um, in your talk you touched upon what I, I think is called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which is that in order to perceive something, you have to have a corresponding linguistic category. Yeah. And I'm wondering if in your research you looked into other language systems and whether their categories of perception resembled the ones that we use. For a taste, specifically? Yes. So I only very, only a little bit. Um, and this is a good question. And people have also asked this question of other sensory experiences as well. There was a, there's a book out about emotion that says, <coughs> it makes a very similar argument. It says, can you feel something that your culture doesn't have a word for, right? Can you feel schadenfreude if you don't, right? Um, so... So I, I did not do a comprehensive survey, but it did come up a few times with Kokumi, this new idea that everybody's like, what, do we get it? It turns out that there's actually another word, yipunmet, in Korean, that appears to mean about the same thing. And the Korean researchers were telling me, look, we're neighbors with Japan, and the reason we're not talking about this, we're not finding it in our food, is because we're separated by this language. And they thought the reason that Kokumi research is so marginalized is because there's not a universal word that everybody recognizes. That's as close as I got. Um, some of the researchers at Monell said, languages tend to build words for the basics. Every word, every language has a word for sweet. Every word has a language for salty, or every language has a word for salty. Everybody has a word for bitter or bad. And in fact, that's one of the arguments against it, is they say most languages have not built a word for fat taste. Maybe it's because it's not there. All right, uh, so that's going to do it for our, our Q&A, but you're not going away. You're going to stick around here. We've got Kara's book on sale in the back. You can come up and just chat with her. She's hanging out, or sign, she'll sign your book. Um, right now, you're, you're teaching right now, or you're not working? Are you? I, I'm teaching. Uh, I am freelancing. Actually, uh, Abby uh, Smith-Rumsey and I are going to be doing a, I don't know, like a sparring match or something like oh, that. Oh, really? On a, not a sparring. We're, we're, going to be, we're going to be in conversation, as they say. Oh, cool. Uh, March uh, 10th at the Mechanics Institute in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. wonderful place. And Abby's, as you said, uh, speaking at the, at the end of uh, the month here. So yeah. that's fantastic. And that's my Twitter feed. If anybody would like to get in touch or come, come talk to me, I'm the only Kara Platoni there is. <laughs> Great, and, and there's still a lot of stories uh, and a lot of chapters we didn't even touch on yeah. yet, so please hang out, uh, talk to Kara. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, one is we have a little uh, ceremony where I want to give you uh, a Long Now Challenge coin thank to thank you for speaking to us. I'm so excited about this. Beautiful. Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval. To find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.